Chapter Five, Part Two of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume One, by Charles Mackay. Modern Prophecies, Part Two. But great as is the fame of Mother Shipton, she ranks but second in the list of British prophets. Merlin, the mighty Merlin, stands alone in his high preeminence, the first and greatest. As old Drayton sings in his Poly Albion, quote, Of Merlin and his skill what region doth not hear? The world shall still be full of Merlin every year. A thousand lingering years his prophecies have run, and scarcely shall have end till time itself be done. Spencer, in his divine poem, has given us a powerful description of this renowned seer. Quote, Who had in magic more insight than ever him before or after living white. For he by words could call out of the sky both sun and moon and make them him obey. The land to sea and sea to mainland dry, and darksome night he eke could turn to day. Huge hosts of men he could alone dismay and hosts of men and meanest things could frame, when so him list his enemies to fray, that to this day, for terror of his name, the fiends do quake when any him to them does name. And sooth men say that he was not the son of mortal sire or other living right, but wondrously begotten and begone by false illusion of a guileful sprite on a fair lady nun. End quote. In these verses, the poet has preserved the popular belief with regard to Merlin, who is generally supposed to have been a contemporary of Vortigern. Opinion is divided as to whether he were a real personage or a mere impersonation, formed by the poetic fancy of a credulous people. It seems most probable that such a man did exist, and that, possessing knowledge as much above the comprehension of his age as that possessed by Friar Bacon was beyond the reach of his, he was endowed by the wandering crowd with the supernatural attributes that Spencer has enumerated. Geoffrey of Monmouth translated Merlin's poetical odes, or prophecies, into Latin prose, and he was much reverenced not only by Geoffrey, but by most of the old analysts. In A Life of Merlin, with his prophecies and predictions interpreted and made good by our English annals, by Thomas Haywood, published in the reign of Charles I, we find several of these pretended prophecies. They seem, however, to have been all written by Haywood himself. They are in terms too plain and positive to allow any one to doubt for a moment of their having been composed ex post facto. Speaking of Richard I, he says, quote, The lion's heart will gainst the Saracen rise, and purchase from him many a glorious prize. The rose and lily shall at first unite, but parting of the prey prove opposite. But while abroad these great acts shall be done, all things at home shall to disorder run. Cooped up and caged then shall the lion be, but after sufferance ransomed and set free. The simple-minded Thomas Haywood gravely goes on to inform us that all these things actually came to pass. Upon Richard III he is equally luminous. He says, quote, A hunchbacked monster who with teeth is born, the mockery of art and nature's scorn, who from the womb preposterously is hurled, and with the feet forward thrust into the world, shall from the lower earth on which he stood, 
weighed every step he mounts knee-deep in blood he shall to thy of all his hopes aspire and clothed in state his ugly shape admire but when he thinks himself most safe to stand from foreign parts a native whelp shall land another of these prophecies after the event tells us that henry the eighth should take the power from rome quote, and bring it home unto his british bower that he should quote, root out from the land all the raised skulls End quote. and that he should neither spare quote, man in his rage nor woman in his lust End quote. and that in the time of his next successor but one quote, there should come in the faggot and the stake End quote. master haywood closes merlin's prophecies at his own day and does not give even a glimpse of what was to befall england after his decease many other prophecies besides those quoted by him were he says dispersed abroad in his day under the name of merlin but he gives his readers a taste of one only, and that is the following. Quote, when hemp is ripe and ready to pull, then, Englishman, beware thy skull. End quote. This prophecy, which, one would think, ought to have put him in mind of the gallows, at that time the not unusual fate of false prophets, he explains thus. Quote, in this word hemp be five letters. Now, by reckoning the five successive princes from Henry the Eighth. This prophecy is easily explained. H signifieth King Henry before named. E, Edward, his son, the sixth of that name. M, Mary, who succeeded him. P, Philip of Spain, who, by marrying Queen Mary, participated with her in the English diadem. And lastly, E, signifieth Queen Elizabeth, after whose death there was a great fear that some troubles might have arisen about the crown. End quote. As this did not happen, Haywood, who was a sly rogue in a small way, gets out of the scrape by saying, quote, Yet prove this augury true, though not according to the former expectation. For, after the peaceful inauguration of King James, there was a great mortality, not in London only, but through the whole kingdom, and from which the nation was not quite clean in seven years after. End quote. This is not unlike the subterfuge of Peter of Pontefract, who had prophesied the death and disposition of King John, and who was hanged by that monarch for his pains. A very graphic and amusing account of this pretended prophet is given by Grafton, in his Chronicles of England. In the meanwhile, says he, quote, the priests within England had provided them a false and counterfeited prophet, called Peter Wakefield, a Yorkshire man, who was an hermite, an idle gather about and a prattling merchant now to bring this peter in credit and the king out of all credit with his people divers vain persons brooded daily among the commons of the realm that christ had twice appeared unto him in the shape of a child between the priest's hands once at york another time at pomfret and that he had breathed upon him thrice saying peace 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 and teaching many things which he anon declared to the bishops, and bid the people amend their naughty living. Being wrapped also in spirit, they said he beheld the joys of heaven and sorrows of hell, for scant were there three in the realm, said he, that lived Christianly. This counterfeited soothsayer prophesied of King John that he should reign no longer than the Ascension Day next following, which was in the year of our Lord 1211, and was the thirteenth year from his coronation, and this, he said, he had by revelation. Then it was of him demanded whether he should be slain or be deposed, or should voluntarily give over the crown. He answered that he could not tell, 
but of this he was sure, he said, that neither he nor any of his stock or lineage should reign after that day. The king, hearing of this, laughed much at it, and made but a scoff thereat. Tush, said he, tis but an idiot knave, and such a one as lacks his right wits. But when this foolish prophet had so escaped the danger of the king's displeasure, and that he made no more of it, he gave him abroad, and prated thereof at large, as he was a very idle vagabond, and used to trattle and talk more than enough, so that they which loved the king caused him anon after to be apprehended as a malefactor, and to be thrown in prison, the king not yet knowing thereof. Anon after the fame of this fantastical prophet went all the realm over, and his name was known everywhere, as foolishness is much regarded of the people, where wisdom is not in place, especially because he was then imprisoned for the matter, the rumour was the larger, their wanderings were the wantoner, their practices the foolisher, their busy talks and other idle doings the greater. Continually from thence, as the rude manner of people is, old gossip tales went abroad, new tales were invented, fables were added to fables, and lies grew upon lies so that every day new slanders were laid upon the king, and not one of them true. Rumours arose, blasphemies were spread, the enemies rejoiced, and treasons by the priests were maintained, and what likewise was surmised, or other subtlety practised, all was then fathered upon this foolish prophet, as thus said Peter Wakefield, thus hath he prophesied, and thus it shall come to pass. Yea, many times, when he thought nothing less." And when the ascension day was come, which was prophesied of before, King John commanded his royal tent to be spread in the open field, passing that day with his noble council and men of honour in the greatest solemnity that ever he did before, solacing himself with musical instruments and songs, most in sight among his trusty friends. When that day was passed in all prosperity and mirth, his enemies being confused, turned all into an allegorical understanding to make the prophecy good, and said, he is no longer king, for the Pope reigned, and not he. King John was labouring under a sentence of excommunication at that time. Then was the king by his counsel persuaded that this false prophet had troubled the realm, perverted the hearts of the people, and raised the commons against him, for his words went over the sea, by the help of his prelates, and came to the French king's ear, and gave to him a great encouragement to invade the land. He had not else done it so suddenly. But he was most foully deceived, as all they are and shall be that put their trust in such dark drowsy dreams of hypocrites. The king therefore commanded that he should be hanged up, and his son also with him, lest any more false prophets should arise of that race. Heywood, who was a great stickler for the truth of all sorts of prophecies, gives a much more favourable account of this Peter of Pomfret, or Pontefract whose fate he would, in all probability, have shared, if he had had the misfortune to have flourished in the same age. He says that Peter, who was not only a prophet, but a bard, predicted divers of King John's disasters, which fell out accordingly. On being taxed for a lying prophet, in having predicted that the king would be deposed before he entered into the fifteenth year of his reign, he answered him boldly that all he had said was justifiable and true, for that, having given up his crown to the Pope, and paying him an annual tribute, the Pope reigned, and not he. Haywood thought this explanation to be perfectly satisfactory, and the prophet's faith for ever established. But to return to Merlin. Of him, even to this day, it may be said, in the words which Burns has applied to another notorious personage, quote, Great was his power, and great his fame, far kenned and noted his name. End quote. 
His reputation is by no means confined to the land of his birth, but extends through most of the nations of Europe. A very curious volume of his Life, Prophecies and Miracles, written, it is supposed, by Robert de Bosron, was printed at Paris in 1498, which states that the devil himself was his father, and that he spoke the instant he was born, and assured his mother, a very virtuous young woman, that she should not die in childbed with him, as her ill-natured neighbours had predicted. The judge of the district, hearing of so marvellous an occurrence, summoned both mother and child to appear before him, and they went accordingly the same day. To put the wisdom of the young prophet most effectually to the test, the judge asked him if he knew his own father, to which the infant Merlin replied, in a clear, sonorous voice, quote, Yes, my father is the devil, and I have his power, and know all things, past, present, and to come. End quote. His worship clapped his hands in astonishment, and took the prudent resolution of not molesting so awful a child or its mother either. Early tradition attributes the building of Stonehenge to the power of Merlin. It was believed that those mighty stones were whirled through the air, at his command, from Ireland to Salisbury Plain, and that he arranged them in the form in which they now stand, to commemorate for ever the unhappy fate of three hundred British chiefs who were massacred on that spot by the Saxons. At Abergwilly, near Carmarthen, is still shown the cave of the prophet and the scene of his incantations. How beautiful is the description of it given by Spencer in his Fairy Queen! The lines need no apology for their repetition here, and any sketch of the great prophet of Britain would be incomplete without them. Quote, there the wise Merlin, whilom wont, they say, to make his one low underneath the ground, in a deep delve far from the view of day, that of no living wight he might be found, went so he counselled with his sprites encompassed round. And if thou ever happen that same way to travel, go to see that dreadful place. It is a hideous, hollow cave, they say, under a rock that lies a little space from the swift berry, tumbling down apace amongst the woody hills of Danvor. But dare thou not, I charge, in any case, to enter into that same baleful bower, for fear the cruel fiends should thee unwares devour. But standing high aloft, low lay thine ear, and there such ghastly noise of iron chains and brazen cauldrons thou shalt rumbling hear, which thousand sprites with long enduring pains do toss, that it will stun thy feeble brains. And oftentimes great groans and grievous stounds, when too huge toil and labour them constrains, and oftentimes loud strokes and ringing sounds from under that deep rock most horribly rebounds. The cause, they say, is this. A little while before that Merlin died, he did intend a brazen wall in compass to compile about Care Murden, and did it command unto these sprites to bring to perfect end, during which work the lady of the lake, whom long he loved, for him in haste did send, who thereby forced his workmen to forsake, them bound till his return their labour not to slake. In the meantime, through that false lady's train, he was surprised and buried under bier, no ever to his work returned again. Nevertheless these fiends may not their work forbear, so greatly as commandment they fear. But there do toil and travel day and night, until that brazen wall they up do rear. End quote. Fairy Queen Book three, chapter three, section six to thirteen. Amongst other English prophets, a belief in whose power has not been entirely effaced by the light of advancing knowledge is Robert Nixon, the Cheshire idiot, a contemporary of Mother Shipton. 
The popular accounts of this man say that he was born of poor parents, not far from Vale Royal, on the edge of the forest of Delamere. He was brought up to the plough, but was so ignorant and stupid that nothing could be made of him. Everybody thought him irretrievably insane, and paid no attention to the strange, unconnected discourses which he held. Many of his prophecies are believed to have been lost in this manner. But they were not always destined to be wasted upon dull and inattentive ears. An incident occurred which brought him into notice, and established his fame as a prophet of the first calibre. He was ploughing in a field when he suddenly stopped from his labour, and with a wild look and strange gesture exclaimed, "'Now, Dick! Now, Harry! Oh, ill done, Dick! Oh, well done, Harry! Harry was gained the day!' His fellow labourers in the field did not know what to make of this rhapsody, but the next day cleared up the mystery. News was brought by a messenger, in hot haste, that at the very instant when Nixon had thus ejaculated, Richard III had been slain at the Battle of Bosworth, and Henry VII proclaimed King of England. It was not long before the fame of the new prophet reached the ears of the king, who expressed a wish to see and converse with him. A messenger was accordingly dispatched to bring him to court, but long before he reached Cheshire, Nixon knew and dreaded the honours that awaited him. Indeed, it was said that at the very instant the king expressed the wish, Nixon was, by supernatural means, made acquainted with it, and that he ran about the town of Over in great distress of mind, calling out, like a madman, that Henry had sent for him, and that he must go to court, and be clammed, that is, starved to death. These expressions excited no little wonder, but on the third day the messenger arrived and carried him to court, leaving on the minds of the good people of Cheshire an impression that their prophet was one of the greatest ever born. On his arrival, King Henry appeared to be troubled exceedingly at the loss of a valuable diamond, and asked Nixon if he could inform him where it was to be found. Henry had hidden the diamond himself, with a view to test the prophet's skill. Great, therefore, was his surprise when Nixon answered him in the words of the old proverb, those who hide can find. From that time forth the king implicitly believed that he had the gift of prophecy, and ordered all his words to be taken down. During all the time of his residence at court he was in constant fear of being starved to death, and repeatedly told the king that such would be his fate if he were not allowed to depart and return into his own country. Henry would not suffer it, but gave strict orders to all his officers and cooks to give him as much to eat as he wanted. He lived so well that for some time he seemed to be thriving like a nobleman's steward and growing as fat as an alderman. One day the king went out hunting, when Nixon ran to the palace gate and entreated on his knees that he might not be left behind to be starved. The king laughed, and, calling an officer, told him to take a special care of the prophet during his absence, and rode away to the forest. After his departure the servants of the palace began to jeer at and insult Nixon, whom they imagined to be much better treated than he deserved. Nixon complained to the officer, who, to prevent him from being further molested, locked him up in the king's own closet, and brought him regularly his four meals a day. But it so happened that the messenger arrived from the king to this officer, requiring his immediate presence at Winchester, on a matter of life and death. So great was his haste to obey the king's command, that he mounted on the horse behind the messenger and rode off, without bestowing a thought upon poor Nixon. He did not return till three days afterwards, when, remembering the prophet for the first time, he went to the king's closet, and found him lying upon the floor, starved to death, as he had predicted. Among the prophecies of his, which are believed to have been fulfilled, are the following, which relate to the times of the pretender. Quote, 
A great man shall come into England, but the son of a king shall take from him the victory. Crows shall drink the blood of many nobles, and the north shall rise against the south. Quote, the coke of the north shall be made to flee, and his feather be plucked for his pride, that he shall almost curse the day that he was born. All these, say his admirers, are as clear as the sun at noonday. The first denotes the defeat of Prince Charles Edward at the Battle of Culloden by the Duke of Cumberland. The second, the execution of Lords Durantwater, Balmerino, and Lovett. And the third, the retreat of the Pretender from the shores of Britain. Among the prophecies that still remain to be accomplished are the following. Quote, Between seven, eight, and nine, in England wonders shall be seen. Between nine and thirteen, all sorrow shall be done. End quote. Quote, Through our own money and our men shall a dreadful war begin. Between the sickle and the suck, all England shall have a pluck. End quote. Quote, Foreign nations shall invade England with snow on their helmets, and shall bring plague, famine, and murder in the skirts of their garments. Quote. Quote, the town of Nantwich shall be swept away by a flood. Quote. Of the two first of these, no explanation has yet been attempted, but some event or other will doubtless be twisted into such a shape as will fit them. The third, relative to the invasion of England by a nation with snow on their helmets, is supposed by the old women to foretell most clearly a coming war with Russia. As to the last, there are not a few in the town mentioned who devoutly believe that such will be its fate. Happily for their peace of mind, the prophet said nothing of the year that was to witness the awful calamity, so that they think it as likely to be two centuries hence as now. The popular biographers of Nixon conclude their account of him by saying that, quote, his prophecies are by some persons thought fables, yet by what has come to pass it is now thought, and very plainly appears, that most of them have proved or will prove true, for which we, on all occasions, ought not only to exert our utmost might to repel by force our enemies, but to refrain from our abandoned and wicked course of life, and to make our continual prayer to God for protection and safety. End quote. To this, though a non-sequitur, every one will cry Amen. Besides the prophets, there have been the almanac-makers Lilly, Poor Robin, Partridge, and Francis Moore Physician, in England, and Matthew Landsberg, in France and Belgium. But great as were their pretensions, they were modesty itself in comparison with Merlin, Shipton, and Nixon, who fixed their minds upon higher things than the weather, and were not so restrained as to prophecy for only one year at a time. After such prophets, the almanac-makers hardly deserve to be mentioned, not even the renowned Partridge, whose prognostications set all England agog in 1708, and whose death, while still alive, was so pleasantly and satisfactorily proved by Isaac Bickerstaff. The anticlimax would be too palpable, and they and their doings must be left uncommemorated. End of chapter 5, part 2